This is Grounded on Purpose with special guest Michael McRae, award-winning author, conflict consultant, and founder of Becoming Restoried. Special note before we begin this episode, mental health topics including suicide are mentioned in this conversation. If you're thinking about suicide or if you're concerned about a friend or loved one, the Lifeline Network is available to you 24-7. Just dial or text 988. Again, That's 988. You can also find this information in our show notes. Wherever you are, please know you're not alone and that people are on call to help. Michael McRae is joining us today, and he specializes in conflict resolution and reconciliation. He actually studied in Belfast and has traveled all over to Israel, Palestine, Northern Ireland, and Africa, studying conflict and resolution. So I'm really excited because we had in our last episode a conversation with Sylvia Gordon from Corey Mila, and Michael actually studied there as well. So this is really just connecting All we're learning through season two on Grounded on Purpose, and he's actually based in Nashville, Tennessee, so he's sitting across the table from me right now. Michael, welcome to Grounded on Purpose. Thank you. What a joy to get to be here in this really cool studio, too. Yeah, the Entrepreneur Center. Yeah, the vibe is fantastic. Yes, yes, I know. I love it here. Special shout out to the Entrepreneur Center because they're just wonderful and wonderful to work with. Um, So... I know that when you wrote this book, I'm Not Your Enemy, which I devoured literally in like 24 hours. It was so good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, how did you set out even to getting into peace and reconciliation? I know that's a big question, but this is like, you know, stuff that the world is just trying to understand. How do we see each other and work through our differences? How did you even set out on this journey? Yeah, well, I mean, there's kind of two different uh, strands of this, I guess. On the mm-hmm. one hand, there's how did I do this particular project? On the other hand, there's like a larger question of where did this passion and interest come from? So uh, I'll start with the passion and interest. It goes back really to, I mean, my childhood, not surprisingly. Um, there's a bit of kind of a, a theological underpinning that I grew up with in terms of thinking about what it means to live a good life and live a faithful life. And the way that I was taught that was a connection to us to something that Jesus talks about to his disciples at one point where he basically says on the judgment day you're going to be asked you know did you give me something to eat when I was hungry did you give me something to drink when I was thirsty did you visit me in prison did you clothe the naked did you you know visit the sick Um, and my dad talked about this as like the call is to be in um, like uh, to be in service to what Jesus calls the least of these the people that are most in need of it and so there was like a value established as a kid around thinking about uh, where I spend my time, how I spend my time, the work that I'm doing, is it benefiting other people and is it healing something that needs healing? So there's, there was that kind of underpinning. And then also when I was 10, I got the chance to travel for the first time overseas and uh, I got to go to Israel. My granddad was a biblical archaeologist and a New Testament professor. So, and can we stop there? What's a biblical archaeologist? <laughs> I, I say it basically means he's just he was like Indiana Jones, just a little bit holier, uh, because <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was like you know he was doing it for the Lord, uh, and so um, so what it meant for my granddad was just like he he fo- he did a lot of archaeology, but he was focusing on discovering things related to uh, stories of the Bible, events of the Bible. So he did a lot of digging in Israel. So my dad spent time there. He lived in Jerusalem for a year as a kid and uh, had a real desire for his family to also experience um, the love that he had for Jerusalem and for places throughout Israel. So I got a chance when I was a kid to travel there. 
Um, and so I fell in love with that place. And then over the years, I've now made 14 trips to Israel and Palestine. And over the years, uh, as I continued to travel there and became, you know, matured, became an adult, I began to become aware of all of the conflict and um, uh, violence that was happening uh, in that place. And so I'd already come to love the place and was developing relationships with the people. And now I was becoming aware of what actually was happening. Mm -hmm. And so there was something in me that was like, man, I really, if I, there's a way I could be part of, um, you know, helping reconcile or heal this. I mean, grand visions of, a, you know, as a 22 year old, a little white savior complex in there somewhere, a little dose of that. But it like created in me this desire to like be part of peacemaking in some way. Now, I also connect it to some of the like particular traumas that I had in my own story. And so when I was a teenager, I was chronically assaulted by other kids in high school and, um, you know, was at was attacked. And a lot of um, uh, inner conflict began to emerge within me about this this sense of uh, chronic self-doubt, um, lack of worthiness. I ended up attempting suicide when I was 20 years old because of all this. And so there was even, there was both this sense of, I wanna be helpful in the world and healing things that need healing and um, resolving conflict because of this value I had from my you know, religious upbringing and from this love that I developed for Israel and Palestine when I was a kid. But then I also had this very personal inner sense of, man, I don't feel at peace with myself. <laughs> and I know what happens when people get activated and commit violence to others because I felt it myself. Mm -hmm. And there's something in me that wants to like um, help make the world a more peaceful place because I'm trying to create a more peaceful place within myself. Yeah. And so there's this interplay, I think, between the inner and the outer and a lot of my in a lot of my story. Yeah. Um, so that's a bit where the passion, I think, comes from. It feels very personal um, uh, in terms of things that I love, but also in terms of my relationship to myself. Uh, in terms of this particular project, I mean, it came about in, I think, in 2014, uh, I learned about a, a new Fulbright National Geographic collaboration mm -hmm. um, where you could get a Fulbright fellowship, but you could get trained in digital storytelling from National Geographic. So I was like, I got to apply for that. And the thing that I wanted to do is I'd love to travel to these areas of conflict and find stories of people who have been trying to reconcile for a long time. And because what was happening in the news at the time was Ferguson had just erupted. Um, uh, Israel was bombing Gaza. ISIS was beheading people in the news. And there was this sense of man, we spent, like, what passes for public storytelling most of the time is the news, and the stories that we're getting are, like, beginning and ending with violence. And we have no sense of any kind of imagination of how we move beyond that. We just keep reporting devastation after devastation after devastation. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I really want to go find stories of people who have lived in these devastated realities but are finding different ways of living together after violence. So I proposed this as a Fulbright, ended up becoming a finalist, was then final 10, and then did not end up getting the, uh, the fellowship. Uh, so I happened to have some connections at Texas Christian University, TCU in Fort Worth, and I wrote to them, I was like, any chance y'all would want to fund this project? And they were like, sure. Wow. And so I ended up getting it funded and got to go spend several months traveling through Israel and Palestine, Northern Ireland, South Africa. I ended up having 60 conversations recorded. So that project was in 2015, and the book was published in 2020. April of 2020, which was a perfect time to have a book come out. <laughs> Everyone was going to book launches. <laughs> Indeed. And, yeah, My no, whole we book tour got canceled. Lockdown. So, uh, right, right. Yeah. I think it's remarkable. I was actually in Ferguson uh, when Michael Brown was 
shot and killed and um, I was one of the first people there, which is really interesting because I think a lot of people don't get to hear from the reporters and producers and people who are in the news being on the ground and talking to like every person you could possibly imagine in a story. So it's, it's kind of interesting because like how do you get to this journey? A lot of it is curiosity. Mm-hmm. I would say with journalism, that was me. I'm from a teeny tiny town. There is no reason I should have worked in television. We didn't have a television station in my town. It was a blinking stoplight, right? But I was so curious and that was my window into the world as well. And I've gotten to meet all these different people. I've gotten to travel the world. I never did that, you know, before working at ABC News at my first job and all of a sudden like one of my first international flights was on Air Force One going to Russia and I was like, what? Like pinch, 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 where am I? Um, But just kind of being curious and knowing a lot about that. And I think this ties into a lot of what you talked about and you're so good in this TED talk and we'll link that in our show notes. But you talk about self-curiosity and how that opens up conversations to others as well. And you you really started there, I think, with our conversation, how your self-curiosity, how your... um, you know, your conflict within yourself has opened you to this place now. And my goodness, what um, what you went through and what you've been through. I'm just so grateful to be sitting with you and learning from you and so grateful for your vulnerability of telling us all these things because there are, there are so much we need to talk about. And there are these people who are like you who talk about it and inspire us and allow us to really tell our own stories too and to know we're not alone I think that's Mm. a big part of it Um, but this self-curiosity what what is that and for those who haven't seen the TED talk yet just kind of give us a little bit about that yeah I appreciate what you're saying and uh, self-curiosity to me I mean you might hear it and think oh that's like um, self-obsession or this you know um, unhealthy uh, focus on your on yourself but I find it's actually one of the most important things that we do in our lives because I, I often think of the line from Gandhi it's not a direct quote but more or less it was we have no hope of creating a nonviolent world if we do not create the nonviolent self and the idea that <clears throat> that if we're interested in, in healing and reconciling others and and you know reducing violence and social conflict whatever it might be there is a degree to which that's got to also be taking root inside And so, um, and one of the things I say in the talk is, uh, what I have found is that the more comfortable um, and and at home with myself and with my story I can get, the more comfortable I will be in speaking about it. And the more comfortable, the more that I speak about it, the more others feel like they can come forward with their stories. And so it becomes this kind of economy of generosity, I guess that uh, I always think of storytelling as an economy of generosity Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're generous with the stories that we tell and then it invites people to be generous with their stories. And, um, and so I've, because there was, because I knew as a kid that I more or less hated myself. I mean, I wrote in a journal when I was, I think it was was like 18 years old. I said something like uh, the, the opening of one of my journals. I found it recently. It said, who am I? I am a worthless, rotten, no good for nothing sinner. Continuing to live disgusts me because I know I deserve to die a ruthless death and end my pitiful, meaningless existence. Wow. Yeah. Now, when I read that, I was like, geez, dude. <laughs> like, yeah. It was like, that's a lot, man. Yeah. And it's because like I was feeling so tortured inside from a lot of the things that had happened to me and having no way to make sense of it and not really talking about it either. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I have found is that one, this self-curiosity is a matter of survival that I ne- I had to start 
I had to get really curious about why do I believe these things about myself? Why do I keep having this story in my head around not being enough, not being worthy, being the problem? Like, where is this really coming from? And so I had to learn how to excavate to the origins of that, find the roots of that. I think I use this like rhyming thing of, you know, we can see what the shoots are of like, these are the, these are the problems in my life. Then we can see, oh, here are the fruits of that. Here's what the, um, the, the impact of that in my life. And when we have to find the roots, if we're going to, if we want to change the fruits, we have to change, we have to find the roots. And so, um, so I've been, that has been a, a constant theme in my life is like, how do I, how do I figure out exactly what is going on? Because one, I want to live well with myself. I want to be able to be at peace with myself. I want to feel reconciled to myself. So how do I live well within this community of myself that exists, all these different parts but then recognizing that the more at peace I am with myself, the less harm I will do to others around me. And whether I'm, you know, I'm married, I have a kid, you know, I'm, and even if I'm not, I'm still got any, I'm, I don't live in an island, right? So I'm always going to be around other people. And so to me, it is like, it feels like it is deeply responsible to myself and to the people around me to be consistently attending to whatever fires and conflicts there are within me. A friend of mine who used to be the leader of Cory Mila, a guy named Padre Gotuma. He, uh, he told me once about this, um, what he called Snoopy theology, which was <laughs> that there was a, a Snoopy comic um, where Charlie Brown approaches Snoopy, who's riding on his doghouse. And Charlie Brown says, what are you writing? And um, I, he says, I hear you're writing a book of theology. And in the second square, he says, I hope you have a good title. And the third square, Snoopy says, I have the best title. And in the fourth square, the title is written, has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Uh, which was just like oh, such a lovely, like, this is the best title for a book of theology. Has yes. it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Wow. So I've often said, like, that's also a great title for, like, a manual on reconciliation or even in our relationship to ourselves. Has it ever occurred to us that all the things we've believed about ourselves, whether in grandiosity or in a sense of depravity, like, what if we're wrong? And so that theme, I think, has run through both my relationship to myself and the work that I've tried to do in terms of interpersonal or social relationships is, like, how is it that we can find reconciliation by holding, uh, by getting closer to the thing that we've been afraid of, by getting curious about what we don't know, and by being open to the fact that we might have been wrong about all the things that we've believed. Right. Oh my goodness. Well, and I would I would say that being wrong is something I I now get up in front of a classroom every day and I'm like, <laughs> guys, I might be wrong or I was wrong, and this is life, right? Yeah. I don't know everything that could write a million books and I'm still learning like that's kind of that's why I love my job now because mm. they teach me so much as I'm teaching them it's very symbiotic in that way I, I kind of want to circle back we were talking about Ferguson but I've been very much as a journalist like parachuted into places and told to talk to all these different people from all walks of life right and I, I've loved it it's honestly it's made me who I am today. But when you kind of get parachuted in and you have to talk to someone who may have, and, and this is horrible, but this happens all the time throughout my 20 years, you had to talk to someone who killed someone and then you have to talk to the family of the person who was killed. Um, I have to say, I haven't talked in depth about that part of my career and how mm. I did that. But I think this is giving us an opening because we've both done that. No matter where you're from, all walks of life, you're going to be talking to people from different sides of the aisle. Um, you want to connect. You want to try to understand where they're coming from. But how do you find 
common ground and middle ground play into these things? Because I talk a lot about the pod, on the podcast about common ground, and then you introduced me to middle ground, and I've just been like meditating on middle ground. <laughs> so explain to me what, how you define kind of common ground, middle ground, and how it plays into some of the people you've met, some of the stories you've told, um, and, and how we can work through that in everyday life with people. Yeah. Well, so I, yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities between the ideas of common ground and middle ground, but there's there are differences. Now, I'll also say I haven't worked this out exactly. This is just something I'm starting to think about is there's so in, in the peace building, peacemaking um, spheres, there's lots of conversation around common ground. We just need to be finding common ground. Right. Um, and they're for good reason. Right. Because there's so much that is telling us um, that is emphasizing our divisions. Maybe that common ground is what leads to middle ground, but maybe not always. So I at the moment I'm thinking like common ground to me feels like what are the things that are foundational for both of us? Um, you know, just even in terms of like, well, we've both got this table, but there's a middle place in this table. Right. The table itself stretches to both of us but there's a space in the middle and so we may have so the, the table in common but we may not have equal access to the middle or like coming to the middle may look different may require different things for us so I think there's I think both of these things are really important in talking about peace building is where is it that we what is it that we can find our, our common human experiences and then in terms of the issues that we are facing or wrestling with, are there places between you and me where we might be able to, to, to stand where I feel like, man, this is a charged place because I'm getting real close to your territory, but I'm still within my truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, I don't know exactly how to articulate it much beyond that at the moment, but it's just this kind of this musing that I've got. And I talk about in the book a quote from this guy that I mentioned, Padre Gotuma, who says that he, he said, I've become less and less interested in the notion of common ground and more interested in how is it that we live well with difference. Mm -hmm. Because whereas, and it's not to say that common ground isn't important, of course it is, but it is also to say um, we are always going to be living with people that are different. Just even think about it in a marriage, like you could have a marriage between two people where they like they have they both have a kid that they absolutely love <laughs> and they might decide we can't be married anymore. Right. They've got common ground, a shared love for their kid. And they also may have differences that are too big for that to be a thing that reconciles their relationship. And so it's just a, I think it's just a recognition that common ground necessarily isn't what's going to save us. I think finding some kind of way to live what to figure out how can I make space for people to have different beliefs, different values, different ideas than me, and that I don't actually have to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. That's a radical notion in a lot of places in the world, including this country increasingly. It's yeah. just like I don't actually have to do anything about that. Uh, and also like getting clear on what are the differences that we have where like I don't know how we live well here and like how do we sort that out in a way that doesn't require us that doesn't mean that okay if you're going to have that belief I have to make sure that you have no power I have to make sure that you have no rights I need to start taking things away from you um, so I talk in the book about um, a book called uh, moving beyond sectarianism and the scale of sectarian danger ranging from things like um, we are different to you are demonic yeah. <laughs> and what is the what's that gradient um, and it's interesting to look at that scale and kind of do your own analysis of you know our particular country or your community or wherever it is 
even your household and be like, where are we at any given time on this scale? Are we just in a place of recognizing very legitimately, oh, we're different. How lovely. Or have we moved, have we turned, we're different into, and therefore there's something wrong with you. And therefore, since there's something wrong with you, I need to make sure that you are that you are gone, that you are eradicated, that you are made less than. So just you ask about some stories. So one story that comes to mind is just a story I tell at the end of the book um, about two fathers, a man named Rami Hanan, who is an Israeli, uh, whose daughter Smadar was blown up by a Palestinian suicide bomber when she was uh, just before her 14th birthday. And then a Palestinian man named Bassam Aramin, who spent years in, in Israeli prison for his uh, activism, Palestinian activism and who uh, was released from prison with the Oslo Accords in 93, thought there was hope, began to have a family, and then his daughter, Smadar, was killed, uh, shot in the back of the head by an Israeli soldier on her way home from school, killed when she was 10. And so to tell the story of these two men who have every reason, by the logic of war, to hate one another, and yet have found that one common ground is their shared sense of loss. And so for a long time, they were the spokespeople for an organization called the Parent Circle, which are Israeli and Palestinian bereaved family members who, who say like, we, what we have in common is that we have lost what nobody is supposed to lose. That we, as Rami says, if we who have paid the highest price possible can talk with one another, then anyone can and anyone should. What excuse do you have? Wow. <laughs> um, and so they have found that that sense of loss is what compels them to work for a world where no one else is dealing with this kind of loss. Rami, Rami said once, he said, our organization, the Parent Circle, is the or only organization in the world that doesn't want new members. Yeah. Which was such a powerful line. Just sit with <laughs> uh, that for a minute, right? Yeah. I mean, oof. And, and, and I mean, you did this throughout the book. And one that really struck me as I have, you know, really gotten a chance to be in Belfast and study the troubles is the IRA bombing that happened. Um, can you explain that story and how it very similar to people that you just think, man, they will never be able to sit in the same room. Mm -hmm. They will never be able to even take a phone call from each other. Somehow they came together. So can you tell us that? Because I think that's so powerful as well. Yeah. So there's a chapter in the book called I've Just Met the Enemy. It tells the story of Joe Barry, who is a uh, English woman whose father was a member of the British Parliament, who was killed in a bombing at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, England, and I think it was 1984. <clears throat> um, and uh, was killed by a, an IRA man who had planted the bomb, a guy named Patrick McGee. So Patrick was sent to prison for years. And Joe, she was, I think she was a teenager in 1984. And, you know, she went through this whole existential crisis, obviously, about the fact that her father had been killed uh, by someone from a different country and um, really wrestling with what, what do I do with that? How do I make sense of that? Going through her own process of grief. Um, one of the metaphors I talk about in her story is the uh, John Paul Lederach, uh, who's a world-renowned peace builder, says that um, you can't, you don't build a bridge by starting in the middle of the river. You start by creating a foundation on each shore and building toward the middle. Um, and so I think in a lot of times what happens in reconciliation work are people who get, especially folks that are not from the divided countries, but like want to come in and do their part. They like want to rush to getting the people in the room. Let's go and have the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's like, but yeah, you can't start there. <laughs> yeah. You can't start. You've got to do the single identity work. You've got to help them build the foundation and the resources within themselves and within their community in order to to build toward the middle. So Joe spent years doing that, trying to do her own grief work and, and um, uh, healing process. 
so this was from 1984 until I think it was 2000, uh, somewhere around there. Um, the Good Friday Accords happened in 1998. This is typical for a lot of peace accords and, and social conflict. Um, political prisoners are released. It's a pretty common thing. So Patrick McGee was released from prison uh, as part of that. Um, and uh, long story short, Joe is basically given the opportunity, if she wanted, to meet Pat, as, as he's known. And uh, she was she got a phone call saying like Pat would like to meet you. And first she was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. And but then decided, okay, I'll go have a conversation with him. So she took a ferry from England over to to Ireland. I think they met in Dublin, and uh, uh, went to a friend's house who was kind of meet orchestrating this. And um, and she she got to the house first, and then he walked in and. Um, she walked right up and just shook his hand and said, thank you for coming. And I remember at the time when she told me that, just being so struck that the first words ever out of her mouth to the man that killed her father were gratitude. Um, just like what it take, what kind of work she must have done to, within herself to be able to just say something as simple as thank you for coming. And they ended up having this conversation with one another um, that she says started mostly with Patrick um, uh giving a lot of political justification, you know, like the, I know this caused pain, but you know, I wasn't there. So this is me kind of making up the story in my head about how it unfolded. But a lot of, um, here's why killing that member of parliament, AKA your father, like was politically justified given our violence. But again, for Joe, he wasn't a member of parliament. He was her dad. And so she says, you know, that eventually there came, uh, she got to a point where she was just like, I can't, listen to any more of this political justification there's no humanness to it and uh she's like and she told me she said in that moment something shifted for whatever reason and it was like patrick ran out of his justification and he paused and he said honestly don't know what to say anymore i don't know what to do anymore can i hear your rage and that's the way that she said he framed the question can i hear your rage and that invitation shifted the energy she thought she was just going to be done with him and, and end the conversation but then something shifted and she was able to speak her own truth um and uh and what she has said since is that um so they were able to have many more conversations and they now have spoken together i think over 200 times around wow. the world about their stories and uh, people want to talk about forgiveness or how do you how do you become friends with the person that, you know with your enemy uh but uh but joe said that what he has been able to do is um he, he's able to hold this complexity, and she can too, of saying, in the logic of war, killing the, the, killing the person in the political position that her father had was justified. And I'm so sorry that I killed your dad. <laughs> and like just trying to hold that complexity. And Joe said that she, you know, that he moved from, and her, and the, the character in her story shifted from, he's the man that killed my father, to also, you know, he's the friend that I do crossword puzzles with on the plane and who, like, helps me navigate Barcelona when I'm lost. And, like, you know, it's just uh, Chimamanda Adichie. There's no single story. Like, these, the story has become more complex and richer and fuller. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's something really powerful about um, where I, you know, I talk about proximity, curiosity, humility. That's what I see in Joe and Pat's story. Like, that moment for Pat of a bit of humility of saying, like I'm out. I don't know what to do or say anymore. There's something clearly that I don't know. Can I hear your? Can I hear your truth? Mm -hmm. And um, 
And she said that she left that meeting and with this sense of, I've just met the enemy and I've seen his humanity. What am I going to do now? Wow. Um, so I, I, I find that just so compelling and deeply challenging, the idea that all the people in our lives or in the news that we believe are enemies, the people that we fear, the people that we say, you know, whether that's Joe Biden or Donald Trump and the people that support both, whatever you think about those people, right, we begin to create all these stories about who they are, what they believe, what they want to happen to me, what they want to happen to this country. Um, and the truth is, is that if we sat with any of these people for very long, eventually we'll find things where we'll be like, man, I just saw your humanity and I don't know what to do with that now. That doesn't mean that all the issues, the divisions we have magically go away, but it does complicate the conversation. Right. And there are exceptions to that. There are some people who will not come to that uh, place of um, showing their humanity. It almost is Correct. like two people have to come to the table willingly yeah uh, in order to talk through difference right i mean that's a big part of what well reconciliation is a it's a two-way street right yeah. I mean, you know i've often been asked like what what in your mind is an irreconcilable conflict and i'm like well the one where two, where the one of the people doesn't want to reconcile mm -hmm. <laughs> right that's the like if you cannot reconcile with someone who doesn't want to reconcile and you can't have an open dialogue with someone who doesn't want an open dialogue so yeah as long as there's one person in the conversation who's like i'm not interested in opening up i mean yeah, there's a real roadblock there. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the U.S., so the U.S. divisions. Um, I find studying through the lens of the Troubles, um, they have the Good Friday Agreement is now coming up on the 25th anniversary, which is incredible. It's one of the most prominent peace deals, and that fascinates me. And I have to say, I went to Belfast for the first time, and I thought, like, oh, they're going to have it all figured out. Like, <laughs> this is how the U.S. is going to have peace. I mean, I was very Pollyanna. Uh-huh. Okay. Vulnerable there, right? Like, uh, this is how I'm going to, like, solve all the world's problems, right? We're going to we're gonna study through this lens. And it's taught me so much. I've learned so much. But it also le – I, I learned – they're still working through that. And this is something you talk about that um, I, I, you talk about it through the lens of um, the 12 steps. There is a, a term in 12-step in recovery that's if you go 20 miles into the woods, it takes 20 miles to get back out. So the I idea there is like, hey, if you've spent 20 years in addiction, don't expect that after a year of recovery, it's all going to be solved, right? These things take a while to unlearn. Um, and so a similar principle, John Paul Lederach, who I mentioned, also says that I mean, his, his theory is that as a general um, principle, it takes as long to get out of a conflict as it took to get in it. So like in Northern Ireland, depending on who you ask, that conflict started in the 1960s with the rise of the acute violence of the Troubles, or it was, you know, 400 years old, or it was 800 years old, depending, you know, if you include colonialism and imperialism. So again, depending on who you ask there, they're all going to have different lengths of time for how long the conflict was. Yeah. Um, or if you look at the United States, you could say, uh, I don't understand. You know, we had uh, black people were given the right to vote in the 60s. Racism is gone. Obama was president. This should be done. But if you say, well, if you just even track the conflict, quote unquote, over race in the United States from the time that the first enslaved people were brought here in the 15 and 1600s, that's 350 or so years <laughs> until the Civil Rights you know, Act in, what, 1965 or somewhere in there. So we're, we have a long way <laughs> still mm -hmm. to go to feel like we are out of that. In, in terms of the trajectory of conflict and reconciliation, it makes all the sense in the world that things are still where they are in the United States when you can zoom out. Now, that doesn't mean that we are complacent with that. And and that we just be like, ah, well, that's just the way it is. It's going to unfold the way it unfolds. We still have to be diligent in the work of reconciling and healing. But we can also zoom out and say, 
this tracks <laughs> with yeah. the way that these things often go. Yeah. I, and I think that's really important. I think politics, I mean, I cover politics so intensely for so long. Um, so what you say about, you know, Republican, Democrat in the United States, same in Ireland, really, when you think about um, that struggle, a lot of people think it's a religious war. It's not, you know, it's, it's much deeper than that. Um, so we talked about that in our first episode with Richard English, who's at the George Mitchell Center mm -hmm. at Queens. And it, it really like kind of gave me so many aha moments, but we are divided and we are going to live in difference no matter what. We don't want to all be the same. That's not going to be a good thing either. Right. Um, but there's something in your book too, at the beginning, uh, one of the people who wrote about how wonderful this book is, they said, not many people get argued into thinking different, differently, but people get storied into thinking differently. So where does story come in? Where does that come in when we're trying to work with people? Maybe we start with common ground or finding middle ground, but where does the story part come in where instead of something that I used to think was more effective and I now have backed off this where I'm like, I'm just going to fact check people. <laughs> I am going to fact check them until they understand that this is truth and this is, and there is a, there's good things about fact checking. I love fact checking, but there are lots of other points on storytelling. And I think this quote really gets mm. to that. So can you dive into how instead of arguing, storying might be part of this solution to finding some middle ground if two people are willing to come to the table? Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to resist the urge to get into the whole neuroscience story, which is super fascinating. But there's all kinds of neuroscience research about why stories are so compelling to the brain, about how there's such a hunger for it. Yeah. And even in terms of human evolution, about um, uh, about why we began to tell stories and why we get hooked on stories so quickly. So it's just to say there's there's a whole bunch of science around this as well. But experientially, I'll, I'll share an example um, and I'll start it with this um this theory within conflict resolution, which is called the Penn diagram. And so there's this, you can think of it like a, a pyramid, then we'll just divide it into threes. The top layer is the smallest one, the top corner, and that is positions. Middle layer is interests, and the largest and lowest layer are needs. So PIN, that's where Penn diagram comes from. The idea is that like in conflict, there are always the at least these three things going on. We always have our positions, we have the, what we're interested in and why we have those positions, and then we have the deep human need that is giving rise to all of that. And in conflict, typically, whether this is a social conflict or a, you know, a, converse, a, a conflict with your spouse or a partner, we typically just argue our positions. You know? Um, you know, you don't ever do the dishes. I always do the dishes. You know, kind of like we just pick our positions and we just hunker down there. Um, you know, this is my country. It's not your country. You know, whatever it might be. And uh, this is to that quote, like almost no one has ever changed their mind because someone out argued them where you just were like, you know what, you're making a lot better points than I'm making. I think I agree with you and I'll change the way that I'm living. Right. Like it just doesn't. Have, but we all keep operating as if that is the way that things unfold. But people almost never change their behaviors that way. You change behaviors based on. Um, and, well, there are a lot. There's a lots of theories around it. But I think at the in at a basic level, you change relation, you change behaviors. Um, due to relationships of trust that you have. Mm -hmm. And one of the quotes I love the most around peace building is we move at the speed of trust. And so sometimes these things have to move very slowly. And so the, the idea that, oh, I'm going to be able to come in and have a Facebook debate with somebody or have a one-off conversation and change someone's mind. No, you almost never, ever, ever will because there's no trust. Yeah. There's no trust there. So, and especially if it's being positioned as, let's bring two people who are enemies in and let's have a conversation. We're just like, well, 
I already think you're my enemy. So I, I don't believe most anything that comes out of your mouth. You're not going to convince me of anything. And the more that you argue, because I'm convinced that you're wrong, the more it's going to create justification in me that I am in fact right. And so we just get more and more entrenched in our, in our positions. So the idea in conflict resolution would be like, if you actually want to make progress, you have to get down to the level of needs. What really is at stake in terms of the human experience and the needs that we have? Um, so when you get to Rami and Bassam, their shared need is we really don't want any more of our kids to die. Yeah. <laughs> now, their, their positions around should it be two states or one state in Israel-Palestine, Do, does Israel have any claim to the West Bank, right? You can get into political positions, but it is all going to come back to, but we're doing this because we want to keep our kids alive, which is a different conversation. I used to work with an organization that did uh, story exchanges where we would do... Uh, we'd get a group of people together, pair them up, invite them to tell each other a true story from their life based on a prompt. Like, you know, uh, what's a day when you're, you knew your life would never be the same, for instance. And they each got a chance to tell one another that true story. And their task was to listen so well to the other person that they could retell the other's story in first-person pronouns as if their story is that their partner story actually happened to them. So you would say, uh, my name is Jen, I was a journalist, Correct. and you would go yeah. on with my story, yeah. and then I would tell your story as you, right? Yeah, so I'd be like, you know, so hey, yeah, my name's Jen, so I had my first job uh, with ABC, and it was amazing, because I actually, the first travel that I ever did was on Air Force One, and I like was sitting there thinking, what in the world is happening? I'm on mm -hmm. Air Force One, I'm pinching myself, right? Like, so I would narrate the whole thing as if your story were actually mine. Yeah. So it's meant to sort of, you know, trick the brain into empathy more or less, right? Yeah. To be like, hey, what is it like to if I dethrone myself from the center of my world for a second and let someone else's truth and experience sit there? What happens to me? So that's the basic premise of it. Mm -hmm. So there was one story exchange that happened. It was very high level uh, in terms of its content, and it was around gun violence. So the organization brought together people from all sides of the, I mean, all sides of variety of experiences within the conversation around gun control in the U.S. So you had people who were police officers, people who had been, whose loved ones had been killed by police officers, people who thought the Second Amendment should be abolished and people who will kill you if you try to abolish the Second Amendment, you know, that kind of variety. So... And they all had to get paired up across this division and listen and tell each other's stories and then sit in a circle and retell their partner's story. So two of the people um, that, uh, that were part of that exchange, one was a guy named Todd who owns uh, about 250 guns, at least he did at the time. This was, I don't remember, like five or six years ago. Um, owns about 250 guns, and his, his website had orchestrated the sale of George Zimmerman's gun that killed Trayvon Martin. So highly politicized also. Mm -hmm. His story exchange partner was a woman named Carolyn who had held her daughter in her arms as she bled out from a mall shooting. I think it was in Utah. And that Carolyn herself still has lots of lead in her, in her body and deals with lead poisoning. So remarkably different right. people. You know, Todd has, I said, an arsenal, literal arsenal of guns um, and at the time opposed any restrictions at all on guns. And Carolyn would march in Washington, you know, calling for re restrictions and, you know, um, adjustment of the Second Amendment. So positions seem to be irreconcilable. Now, you can have a sense, so part of the prompt is like, why do you believe what you believe about guns? Where did this, where did the, where are the roots of this in your life? Um, so it's not surprising why Carolyn would have the position that she had. What was, wasn't known is why does Todd have 200, who needs an arsenal in their house? Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
what we learned when Todd began to tell his story is that he talked about how he grew up with a uh, horrifically abusive father and that the day that he grabbed a gun when he was a teenager and pointed it at his father, he didn't shoot him, but he pointed at his father, the abuse stopped. And he, and what, as they say, what wires together, fi- what fires together, wires together. So what fired together in his brain is this gun keeps me safe from abuse. And that trauma unresolved over time, as Resma Minicum says in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, you know, trauma unresolved over time looks like personality. <laughs> um, and in a person, in a culture, it, I mean, in a society, it looks like culture. And so for Todd, like what, what got wired together was the idea that the more guns I have, the safer that I am. And so what was interesting in that conversation is looking at two people who had radically different political positions on guns, but whose need was exactly the same, which is I need to feel safe and secure in my life. And for one, that felt like that means I mean more guns and the other it's we need less guns. So it isn't to say that that realization suddenly meant that they were now best friends, but they were able to have a very different conversation and were able to shorten it. One of my favorite definitions of story is the shortest distance between two people. And so the distance got shortened between them so that they were able to have a much more human conversation. Um, and, and so I think that's the power of story in these kinds of situations is that if, you know, if I were to, uh, if you were to get a Republican and a Democrat to sit down and, you know, um, and if you get a, you know, a Hillary supporter and a Trump supporter to sit down and you're just like, talk about, you know, why each candidate is the right one for America. They're never, ever, 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 ever going to agree. But if you can find a way to get them to begin talking experientially about their life and stories and find the origins of how the things that have happened to them have led them to the beliefs that they have, they still might not agree, but they're going to have a very different conversation. And that's where the Joe Barry line comes in of that's what helps people see the humanity. Mm -hmm. So story to me is the vehicle for communicating our humanity. Our facts almost never do it. Um, And so Rachel Naomi Remen, who's a, a narrative practitioner in medicine, has a line that says something like stories are the flesh that we put on the facts of our lives. Um, and so that there is a sense of like the facts matter, but facts in themselves rarely ever convince people of something. It is seeing the way in which it comes to life in our lives and about how this manifests experientially that's actually going to shift people because there's humanity there, there's emotion there. There rarely ever emotion in the facts. The, the, the emotion comes in through the story, through the impact, through the meaning. Yeah. And they find that empathy, right? So. Mm-hmm. Did Todd end up telling Carolyn's story? Did he sit there and try to yeah. uh, find that place? And, and I mean, how did that play out? Yeah, so they all had to come, to come around, and I think there were maybe 16 of them. I can't remember exactly. And uh, Todd began to tell Carolyn's story. And when he got to the place of talking about how his daughter, because he's telling her story in first person, had been killed, he just bent over sobbing. You know, like it, it, it touched something in him because he, he had to get so much close. He had to take on that story as if yeah. it were his. And it does something very different than even if he were to say, so this is my partner, Carolyn, and she lost her daughter in a mall shooting. It's very different when you say, I am Carolyn. And when I held my daughter, right, just the language itself does something different experientially to us. Um, so you can actually watch a, a highlights of that um, story exchange online. If you go to YouTube and search guns and empathy, then you'll find um, a, a 20 minute documentary made about this story exchange. So highly encourage people to go watch it. Yeah, I, I had a really it's so interesting because we were talking about this and I 
um, when I was working with Anderson, we did these hour-long town halls, um, and one was on guns in America, and we did a similar situation. We didn't do it in that way, and I now wish I, I want to go back and redo it. Um, but no, it was nominated for Emmy. Like it was an mm. incredible um, special, and we had law enforcement on, and we had similar. Just all we had uh, victims, families from the Sandy Hook shooting. We had. I mean, it was just this. I think I believe we were in an auditorium, and we had people from like kind of all walks with guns. Um, and it's something that was really scary to take on, to be honest, as like a producer. Um, but people were willing to come into the room together, which is really interesting. Did we solve all the world's problems in that room? Not at all. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of interesting to see that people were willing to sit down and they knew the premise of this and they knew what we were doing. Um, and they had to listen. So I think that's even kind of like a little starting point sometimes where you can just try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I know our parents always told us that growing up or our mentors tell us that, but it really is sometimes like that simple, but to do it with that voice, that's that's a powerful tool. That's something that, um, yeah, I, 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 that's gonna stick with me for a long time. Mm. How do you think um, education plays into all this? I, I study social media and the politics of identity. So particularly disinformation, misinformation, and propaganda, this thing called ampliganda, amplified propaganda (laughs) because of the algorithms and things that are Mm -hmm. feeding it. Um, How is education, my way in I think is like education can help some of this. I am not a lawyer. I do think regulation is certainly needed in these social spaces, but how does education help with conflict and reconciliation? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that comes to mind is that they talk a lot about in in um, building, like in reconciling a, a society after violent conflict, that one of the most important factors in guaranteeing the success of that is the integration of schools. So bring, you know, in Belfast, making sure that you got Protestant and Catholic kids who are now going to school together, or whenever this gets solved in Israel-Palestine, making sure that Israelis and Palestinian, you know, Israeli and Palestinian kids are going to uh, have similar schools to go to, um, because you know the the stories that were the, the stories that were taught about the other or about our history inform everything about the decisions we make, where we spend our time, what we believe about the other. And so um, I think education is is pivotal. So we have to be very um, cognizant and discerning about the content that we allow in and the content that we allow out. Um, and at the same time, uh, there's a real problem in creating these little um, bubbles of you know where everyone exactly thinks the same and that's kind of what we what the algorithms end up allowing us to do more or less online is that we can create these our feeds Mm -hmm. uh, so that what we are seeing publicly in the world is just a reflection of everything that we already believe um, which is in no way real life Uh, and so yeah I think having education and where I think of education, I just think of it like connected to curiosity and humility. You know, that is more or less what education is. It's recognizing that you don't know everything mm-hmm. and being curious about what you don't know. And so like that as a principle is um, not just like beneficial. It is uh, almost everything hinges on that, you know, yeah. that you there is literally no hope in my mind of transforming anything. If you come in with the belief of I already know everything that I need to know about this. Well, there's n- literally nowhere we can go then. 
Um, but if we can cultivate, and education can do that, education can be very effective in reminding us of all the things that we don't know. <laughs> uh, and in trying to say, hey, I actually, you know, you, you've got this particular story about, you know, how the United States was founded or whatever. I want to make sure that you know some of the stories of enslaved people and the history of convict leasing and the history of mass incarceration. Do you know this story? You should know this story. Mm -hmm. And like what happens to us <laughs> when we start getting a fuller picture of what has happened um, in any of our spaces? So. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I think education is uh, is crucial. Um, and there's such a power to it as well as with storytelling because you can educate people into all kinds of thinking. Um, you know, most any genocide that has happened is because people were educated into a way of thinking about the other. Right. Um, so we absolutely have to pay attention to, to what we're learning, who we are learning it from, the content that we're bringing in and the content that we're putting out. Absolutely. I think that's like a beautiful note to end on, too. Um, and education can mean so many things. It doesn't mean you have to be a professor. Um, it, it's everything you do, right? You could just read more about something that you completely disagree with and try to dive in and just see, like, where is there a part of this that I can kind of find that common ground, middle ground, or any of those little strategies like how can I just try to understand more and know that I don't know everything yeah. um, that's a huge part of this so Michael thank you so much for joining us Absolutely. this was incredible I am I really love I'm not your enemy I can't wait to dig into all your other books as well um, and we're going to link the TED talks and uh, other things you've done so many wonderful things and continue this journey um, that you're you're doing now. And I also want to thank you too. I think it's really hard um, and I, I don't want that to get lost. We opened with um, just mental health and how you really had to work through that. Um, so in our show notes as well, I'm just going to put where people can find these resources. Um, I've mentioned it in past episodes, but one of probably my, my absolute, like the most incredible production I ever worked on was um, a, it was a show with Anderson Cooper on mental health and specifically suicide. And mm. I've had uh, two people in my family um, die by suicide. So it is something that's very personal to me. Anderson did as well. So when you talk about those things, like that is something that's so near and dear to my heart. We ended up partnering with the Suicide Lifeline. Um, people knew where to get help. It's the most calls they've ever had, not because people um, were saying that they wanted to hurt themselves, but that they had someone they loved and cared about and how yeah. do we talk about that? So I think part of this too is sometimes we don't know what to say and that comes into the conflict and uh, trying to like reconcile, but with mental health too, like we just don't know what to say, so we say nothing and that's where we get into a lot of trouble. So just starting these conversations, being vulnerable, talking openly about them, um, I really think that is something that is really important to end on as well because you have done that in your TED talk. Um, I listened to it again this morning. I had, I had watched it and listened to it and I watched it again this morning. Um, but for you to open up and just let us all know we're not alone um, and share your struggles because you're this wonderful, brilliant, successful person. So um, that really helped me and I think it's going to help so many others. So we will definitely link that. But thank you. Thank you again for joining us and sharing your stories. And thank you all for listening to Grounded on Purpose. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps others find us and helps our small team to know that we should keep producing more episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Grounded on Purpose or on our Grounded on Purpose Facebook page. Grounded on Purpose is produced by myself, David Pang, and Lexa Thompson. Audio and video editing by Lexa Thompson. Music is by Jay Loren and Mike Olekshi. 
Every day is a gift with a new lesson. Join us once a month as we get grounded together on purpose. Thanks again for listening.